Well, welcome to Inside EMS, everybody. I'm Chris Tabalera. we got a lot to get to today in the days of COVID-19, the coronavirus, what's going on, how are we going to deal with it, is it panic, is it something that we should really, that we should really worry about? We're going to get into all those discussions. But before I start, I'm going to have to introduce my partner. He is back from the EMS World Tour in Watertown, New York. Kelly Grayson, KG, how are you doing? I'm good, man. I'm I'm good. Uh, I'm glad to be back and uh, uh, had a good time uh, from the nice folks in Watertown. And uh, luckily, they they got their conference in before travel bans and everything else uh, were enacted, and uh, we all social distanced and washed our hands thoroughly and and, and survived. Uh, so well, I just want you to know. To, I just I got I got to tell you, man. I mean, I don't I don't mind doing it, but you really got to check with me before you go into New York. Because they always call to vouch for you, and I'm like, oh, yeah, he's all right. He's a good guy. Let him in. <laughs> so I just need a heads up when you go into New York without my approval. Um, you know, I've got to give approval for you to go. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll make sure that I do that next time. I, I just want it said for the record that, that um, I've been social distancing myself from you for years before COVID-19. No, I know you have necessity. You, you're actually setting the standard for others <laughs> to follow. So thank you, brother. So, That's right. You know, Kelly, we do have a lot to talk about today, and we've got a great guest who's going to join us. He is an EMS One columnist and really one of the leaders in EMS, uh, our friend Scott mm-hmm. Phelps. Scott, we want to welcome you to Inside EMS. Thank you, Chris. It's great being here again. And uh, it's been a while since you've been here. I mean, uh, I think it's uh, been a year. You said three years, so we'll split the difference. We'll say two years. But, you know, one of the things that we wanted to get to, Scott, from your side, I mean, you've got a lot of experience at EMS. You've got a lot of experience in the state government. And one of the, one of the things that I wanted to touch on before we get to the provider level is, can you give us a thought, maybe from the state level, what are the states doing to prepare? Or let's uh, let's give you the scenario: if you were in in charge of a state, <clears throat> if you were in charge of a state, um, what would you be doing to prepare EMS providers to handle this pandemic? Well, there's a there's a couple of things here that are probably going on simultaneously, and one is that um, the attention that's paid to protecting. EMS clinicians is usually something that's on the back burner, but for this kind of event, obviously, it's becoming a lot more high profile. Now, now sometimes those events are important but quiet, and sometimes those events are important and quite public, and this just happens to be one of the latter, where lots of EMS systems are having problems sourcing and maintaining adequate supplies of PPE for their clinicians. But there's another thing that state folks are thinking of, and that's making sure their systems can continue to work. And it's not just the 911 ambulances, but just as important is, does the interfacility system continue to work as well? Because if you can't transport those patients from the community hospital to the tertiary medical centers, um, they're going to get quickly overwhelmed. So load balancing is also important. And it's one of those things which, as you may know, um, doesn't get treated very um, importantly. Everybody just assumes the ambulances will be there uh, until they're not for the interfacility work. So making sure the system continues to work is what state EMS directors and EMS officials are probably spending 20 hours a day doing now, every day. So Scott, I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, one of the things that really is something that, you know, as an EMS leader, I kind of think about how would I handle, you know, my day to day. 
And you bring up a lot of great things. I mean, you talk about, you know, really business as usual as we start to deal with, you know, everything else that we have to do. But it's taking those people from point A to point B as well. At what time do we say, you know, we got to shut this down? You know, from a community paramedicine standpoint, where I'm spending all my time now, I've got to start to think about, you know, as an EMS leader, when do I stop those home visits to start to utilize those resources in different ways? Or am I now changing the process of how those community paramedics are working? Do we have these community paramedics now go in and start doing uh, home tests for COVID-19? Or are we going to start to do more care in the home as community paramedics? So as a leader, I've got to start to think about now, am I changing the way I'm using my resources? Am I stopping these you know, inner facility transfers? I mean, how do we balance that? Well, there's a lot of things to think about. The first thing is, is how we can do the most good. And the second thing is, how do we get paid for it? Uh, that's a big problem because EMS in America, uh, you know, public insurers don't cover the cost of doing business. So a lot of the way EMS organizations make money to balance their books is by doing the interfacility work. So the question is sort of a, a multifactorial problem, right? So we have to do the most good. We have to get paid a reasonable amount for doing it. And then, you know, for your healthcare system, they want to limit the number of patients who come in. So that's where community paramedicine is paying off. The question is, we can't be all things to all people without a huge influx of cash. And if we're going to be underwriting the, the airlines and the New York City subway system and everybody else under the sun, now's the time for EMS to step up to the plate and ask for a billion dollars, or maybe like the airlines, $40 billion, to actually create a system which is appropriately funded so we can actually meet our missions to all our patients. I, I like that approach, Scott, and that's, uh, I, I hadn't really considered that, uh, that the rest of, of the U.S. economy is, is uh, expecting some government largesse here in the in the very near future in the form of bailouts and, and monetary supports and subsidies uh, yet EMS hasn't really advocated yet and God knows we are taxed enough as it is on a regular basis so um, yeah a few billion dollars here and there would uh, would would really help out uh, uh, EMS systems uh, on the whole and this is the problem that America is facing right now you know over the past 25 years We've had hundreds, if not thousands, of hospitals close across the U.S. in the name of efficiency. And now is the point where they're realizing, hey, perhaps it wasn't such a good idea to have our census running at 90 to 100 percent all the time. Maybe we now it's no not a surge capacity. No surge capacity at all, because the system has been designed to be at 90 to 100 percent capacity or 110 percent capacity all the time. If you're going to invest in preparedness, it's going to cost money and it's going to sit there 90% of the time. But when you need it, you're really going to need it. And it doesn't come out of thin air. You know, uh, Trump uh, isn't right that you can just lay off all the public health preparedness specialists in the country and then call them back when you have a public health crisis. That's not really the way it works. People have other jobs by then. And so if you want things to be prepared for a crisis, you have to invest now. It's kind of like the military, right? The military spends one third of its time fighting, one-third of its time you know, resting and recovering, and one-third of its time training. But most of the time, they're not spending their time fighting. And I think public health preparedness and EMS is very similar. Well, and, and the, 
I, I find it ludicrous that that he would think that we could lay these people off uh, and then rehire them when the when the crisis hits. Um, the whole reason we have them uh, employed is to stave off the crisis uh, in the first place. Uh, we're supposed to be prepared. Uh, and it's becoming more and more obvious that the United States uh, and our healthcare system in general was in no way prepared for a pandemic, um, both in stockpiles and preparation and planning uh, and, and the personnel uh, training that we have. Uh, in no way were we prepared. And I don't think we've seen the worst by a long shot. It's going to get a lot worse before it gets better. I think it is, too. And the one thing that really scares me is EMTs. So EMTs in this country are generally... Uh, paid that slightly above minimum wage, and there's really not a huge uh, backlog of people who are waiting to go work in this environment for minimum wage wages where you could get paid more working at Starbucks. So as soon as this crisis goes on for a month, six weeks, you're going to start seeing a real shortage in the ability to transport people, uh, not high acuity people, but transport people between facilities and even providing BLS care in communities. And there is no backfill. And maybe this is the opportunity to leverage higher wages out of the system, but I don't think so because EMS people generally are not willing to work together like transit workers or sanitation workers or police officers or firefighters to just say, we're, you know, there's no one to do this, so you're going to have to just buckle down and pay us more. Um, they, they tend to shoot themselves in the foot. You see it right now. You see it you saw it today and over the past couple of days when you have EMS clinicians who are complaining that they're not being provided with appropriate PPE and yet they're still going to work and they're still serving patients. I wouldn't go. I would point blank say no, that if you're not going to meet the, the NIOSH and the OSHA standard for providing me with a respirator, I am not going to care for these patients because I have a wife and I had children and... I need to make a living, and I'm not willing to put myself at risk of dying because you were too cheap uh, and lazy to get this appropriate PPE so that I can care for patients. Yeah, but I think that one of the things, too. every subsequent patient. And every subsequent patient as well. You're right, Kelly. But I think that one of the things, too, is, you know, in the time of, in the time of crunch, we try to put our hands on as much, you know, personal protective gear, or we do whatever it is that we need to do to make sure that our providers are safe. Now, are there leaders in the EMS world that flout that, that aren't very, uh, 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 you know, take due diligence when it comes to keeping their EMS providers safe? The answer is yes. But I think that one of the challenges that we have is the lack of ability to put our hands on this stuff as well putting our hands on masks, putting our hands on gowns, you know, having the ability, having the ability, you know, to have this, you know, these resources that we need. So we have to be able to know that some of the agencies that are having a shortage are having a shortage because they really can't put their hands on it as well. Chris, I, I don't disagree with you. But why is it our responsibility? Why is it the responsibility of the clinicians when your bosses, uh, company owners, the politicians haven't invested in getting you the gear to protect you. That's like saying you're a firefighter and we, I'm sorry, we just can't afford the SCBA and the turnout gear. So we're going to send you to do interior attacks in your street clothes. Well, uh, yeah, I, I yeah, can but see that point, Scott, but, but some of the times these, these agency directors, many of them, their hands are tied. I, I've got a good friend uh, and, and a fairly popular uh, EMS speaker as well. Who's a, who's a uh, service director. 
uh, and they requisitioned uh, and tried to get N95 masks and gowns and eye protection and face shields. And, and, uh, and what they got uh, from the federal government was wholly inadequate to deal with their, uh, to, to meet their needs. They got 2000 um, expired N95 masks from federal stockpiles. And, and how long is that going to last a, a relatively busy service? But Kelly, uh, you, you don't wait to buy you, the SCBA until the day of the fire. True. Where do you get the money for the SCBA before then? Well, this, because, is, uh, this is what your job is. Operating on a, on a razor-thin margin. I, I don't buy razor-thin margins. I don't. Because if you're a municipality, you know, listen, Louisiana, how many parishes do you have that have sheriff's departments, you have state patrol, they seem to be pretty well funded. So don't give me this razor-thin margin. We have a razor-thin margin because we accept that, not because that's the reality. If parishes had to pay for EMS the way they pay for their sheriff's departments, we'd have a much better funded system. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And, and it's one of the things that EMS has always kind of been in the, in the backside of, uh, you, know, the, you know, the business of getting our hands on grant monies and things like that. And hopefully from this pandemic... We'll start to raise more awareness. We have to be able to raise more awareness. Let's put it that way. But, you know, one of the things that you said before, Scott, I thought was very interesting, where you were talking about the backfilling of EMTs. And I'd really be interested in this as a discussion between all of us. And, and Kelly, I don't know if you have a thought on it as well, is when we start to think about and we read about our brethren who are starting to get sick now, I mean, as we now start to care for these people who we may not even know have this disease, have the virus, and now we're interacting with them, and now we're bringing it home to our, our, our family, and now we're going to start to go out because we're the ones that are sick. What, what is the, the EMS system in the United States going to look like here in the next four to six weeks? Well, I, I can tell you really easily. You just go. There's a book that was produced by the um, Ontario uh, Department of Health called Spring of Fear. If you Google it, you can find it. And it talks about how during the SARS crisis, basically Toronto EMS came to a complete stop. Um, everything was nationalized. They couldn't do transfers without pre-approval. Um, the system stopped. They had literally dozens and dozens of their clinicians who were exposed and who were deathly ill. And that's what we're going to see here. It, we're already in a situation where um, systems are allowing clinicians to use uh, face masks, not respirators. Now, face masks are designed to prevent you from transmitting the disease to somebody else not to prevent somebody else from transmitting the disease to you. They're allowing people to wear these respirators, excuse me, these face masks for more than a day at a time, or the respirators for more than a day at a time, which is completely inadequate. You know, we're going to be in a situation where the system is going to be severely strained, and there's no backup. There, there's no alternative ambulance system anywhere in the country, really, where you're going to be able to just find somebody, pluck them out of nowhere, and put them on an ambulance and allow them to provide, you know, not even basic clinical care, let alone advanced clinical care. And I, I, I disagree, Chris, with with the whole uh, timeline of the next four to six weeks. I think we're going to be dealing with the fallout and ramifications of this this time next year. Uh, maybe not to the, uh, hopefully not to the degree that we are right now, and and that we are in the coming few weeks, but. Uh, the ripple effect of this is, is going to be affecting us uh, long-term, uh, far down the road from, from four to six weeks, uh, both in terms of, of uh, uh, a 
attrition and, and people not being able to provide care. We, we won't have enough personnel uh, and the, uh, the, you know, lack of supplies and everything else. It's, I think it's going to fundamentally change the way we do things. Um, our only hope is that we learn the lesson from it and that we, uh, we change for the better. Uh, Scott, one one question I would have for you is is how would you recommend that the the EMS provider start to change their practice and how they deal with patients and and how I'm not talking just the the simple stuff that we know about PPE and the distancing and the hand washing and the 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 uh, the hygiene procedures, but how would you recommend that they they adopt their uh, changes to their practice right now? I know that my practice has certainly changed. Uh, in the last few days on, on what recommendations I make to patients and, and who accompanies them to the hospital and so on and so forth. I was interested in hearing your thoughts on the topic. Well, one of the things I think we need to do is get a lot more stringent about uh, cleaning and cleanliness. Mm-hmm. Um, I, think, uh, I think it's criminal that we don't have terminal decontamination either using UV or hydrogen peroxide after each contaminated patient. You know, our ambulances and our uniforms, and our stethoscopes, and our stations, our cesspools. If you look at the data, the percentage of uh, clinicians who harbor uh, MRSA in their nose is something like 4 to 5%. Oh, the cootie factories. Yeah, the percentage of couches and stations that have uh, are test positive for MRSA was astronomical in Washington State. So taking cleanliness seriously, as I think is one of the biggest things we need to change, and parallel to that is instead of having people change out of their PPE and then go sit in the front of the ambulance, I think we need to very rapidly shift to at least a three-person crew where we have a dedicated chauffeur who sits in the front and we have dedicated clinicians who stay in the back of the vehicle all the time. Um, we need to stop cross-contaminating everything we do on a, on a really consistent basis. Okay. Yeah, that's an interesting thought I had had not considered. How, how will we meet that need when we're already worried about backfilling uh, backfilling uh, personnel slots now with, with two-man crews? Well, you know, one of the things I was thinking about today, uh, I'm a really big history buff. And if you go back, um, not so far back to the 40s and 50s and uh, even the 30s, when you called an ambulance, there was two kinds of ambulance calls. There was public ambulance calls, like you got your, in a car crash. And there was private ambulance calls, where you go to somebody's house when they were sick. And all throughout the Northeast, um, you couldn't call the ambulance for a house call unless your physician called for you. Um, so if there was a crash, the ambulance would go. But if you were called to somebody's house, you wouldn't go unless they had already called and spoken to their physician. And I don't think that's such a wacky idea to start doing now, because that way it'll force people to call and speak to their clinician first, and then worry about calling the ambulance second. All of these models where you're trying to triage patients and divert them to other systems of care um, don't really seem to work that well. But if people had to call their primary care provider and get the primary care provider to call the ambulance, that would actually probably cut down on, I, I don't know, I'm taking a guess, 30% of all ambulance calls? Yeah, I would, I would imagine so. Chris, you, your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think that we, anything that we can do 
that will allow us to do our job better, I think that we've got to be able to consider and figure out a way that we can do that. I mean, I, I love the thought of, you know, putting more people on the ambulance and, you know, being able to ensure that, you know, we can do a job with the best resources that we can. You know, when you talk about cross-contamination, you know, we do it all the time. And, you know, Kelly and I have talked so many times on this show about how we're bringing more germs home than we did when we were in college or in the military, um, you know, from stethoscopes to pens to, to cell phones to, you know, I've gotten into the habit now as I'm washing my hands a little bit more to actually pay attention to my phone and, and uh, you know, clean it off every time I wash my hands as well. But we don't do a good job when it comes to that. And if we could figure out a way that we can now, I like your concept of keeping people in the back and, and uh, having a driver up front and just leaving that totally uh, separated. I mean, I think that that's a great concept. Um, are we going to see it in our lifetime? I don't think we're going to see it. I, no, I'm not. I'm not so sure. Um, I, I don't know about the third person, as, as Scott recommended, but uh, a number of states have, uh, from what I'm reading in, in the news wires and my Google alerts, a number of states have enacted, uh, have, have resurrected the old uh, ambulance driver uh, uh, job role and, and uh, allowing uh, units to be driven by non-EMS personnel uh, or people without an EMT or EMR certification. I think that's probably going where we may see uh, uh, even more of that as this, uh, this crisis starts to grow and spread. Well, Minnesota did worse than that. Minnesota basically said you don't have to have anybody certified on the ambulance at all. Yeah, uh, well, that I would have an, a major issue with. Um, and it, and it, that kind of tells me that, that uh, Minnesota lawmakers have really no concept of, uh, of what EMS is trained to do and, and what we bring to the table um, uh, if they value us that poorly. Uh, well, it, they, it was, they, their, it was their board. It's transportation only. Minnesota has an EMS board. And mm -hmm. in their defense, it was only for five days in contrast to New Jersey, which just did basically the same thing. Not really quite the same thing, but close to the same thing, but has no time limits on it. So New Jersey mm. has gone from mandating two paramedics on every paramedic unit to only mandating a paramedic in an ENT. It's went from, from the regulated ambulances, to which normally require two EMTs, to requiring an EMT and a CFR, which is weird because New Jersey doesn't recognize CFRs. So we don't have <laughs> CFRs in New Jersey. Um, so one of the other ideas I was thinking about was, if you've ever known anybody who worked for UPS, UPS drivers can't carry anything with them when they go out on the truck. So they put their cell phone and their keys and their money and everything goes in a lockbox before they go to work. And UPS does that for their own reasons. But when I was thinking about that today, I realized part of the problem with PPE is people are so surgically attached to their phones that there's no way you could expect uh, uh, adult paramedic today to to not be fussing with their phone while still in PPE. So I think maybe we should start you know, mirroring UPS's uh, policy about making everybody put everything in their locker at the beginning of tour and just wear the damn PPE. Yeah, that's interesting. that's interesting. I don't know. Just when you just when you said that, I had to reach for my phone because I had a little separation anxiety. I don't know that that. Uh, <laughs> Well, they, I don't know how that's going to work. One of the things we've seen in, in our local, uh, uh, in, or in our state rather, uh, the DOH ordered uh, all of the nursing homes and, and long-term care facilities to start 
uh, screening every entry, uh, every uh, uh, person coming in uh, to the nursing home and implementing a no visitors policy. And that's something we've already run into is uh, when we go to our convalescent homes, uh, there is a nurse standing outside in, in PPE and taking temperatures and, and, and uh, um, with a screening questionnaire before we even go inside uh, or if uh, if it's an emergent patient, uh, we're that that process is expedited, but we're still uh, have our temperature checked uh, every single time. I wonder how many other states have have implemented such measures. I think a lot of them have, and I think it's a good idea. The same way that ER nurse is going to ask those questions that you just asked ten minutes yep. ago all over again, yep. because the answer changes. Uh, I yes, think it's it a does. good it's a good idea for the nursing home to actually go and and check every person coming in and out. And they're, listen, they're doing it for their own staff as well when they come to work. Um, it's not so burdensome, and it's trying to keep people safe. The most vulnerable people are going to be people over 75 in a congregate setting. So literally, you know, it's having one person with coronavirus come into a nursing home is the equivalent of dropping a hand grenade in the middle of uh, bingo. Scott, good good points all, and it's given us a lot of food for thought in, in how we as individuals and how our agencies uh, approach the coming days uh, with the COVID-19 crisis. Uh, I know that, that I, am, I am more mindful of where I transport patients and what recommendations I, I make uh, for the worried well and their family members, um, and, and that's something that's probably going to, to continue for the foreseeable future. But that's what we think. We'd like to hear what you think. What is your agency doing different with the COVID-19 restrictions? What is your state doing different? Are you getting the support from your governmental entities that you as an individual and your agencies need? We'd like to hear your thoughts at the show at EMS1.com. And for myself and co-host Chris Ceballero and our special guest this week, Scott Phelps, the man with, along with Ray Barashansky and Tyler Christopoli, the best hair in EMS. Thanks for tuning in to Inside EMS. <laughs> We're going to catch you guys next week. Wow. How about that? <laughs>